Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Mike Preisner here in studio with Abby Martin. The U.S. government and media have been for weeks calling for regime change in Cuba because of some anti-government protests in the country and much larger ones held in Miami. That rhetoric has turned into action, with the Biden administration increasing sanctions on the economically besieged island and the Republicans putting forward a plan for a U.S. military invasion. The mayor of Miami, the representative of the Cuban exile community, has gone so far as to call for the bombing of Havana, basically calling for the Libya model to overthrow the government. There's been a huge propaganda campaign to distort what's really happening on the ground, led by corporate media, which across the board has been showing photos and videos of pro-government marches claiming that they were actually anti-government marches. And that's uh, also been bolstered by a highly suspect emergence of thousands of social media accounts engaging in a war to control the media online. Just days ago, Biden announced that regime change in Cuba had become a top priority for the administration. That's a pretty serious escalation. So to help our listeners better sift through the propaganda, we've got a great episode for you that we hope gives you everything you need to know. Before we introduce our guests, we wanted to remind you that we are making this episode free for everyone because of the serious nature of the escalation and how important it is for us to educate and mobilize others against the U.S. attacks. So if you support what we do, help make it possible at patreon.com slash empirefiles and receive access to the library of patron-only content we have there. And of course, there's much more to come. So I'm very happy to introduce our guest today, Gloria Lariva. Gloria has traveled to Cuba probably more times than she can count, uh, going very frequently over a period of several decades, most recently this past June. She made an excellent short film called Workers' Democracy in Cuba, which everyone should check out, and has also been very intimately close with the political process in the country, uh, frequently meeting with everyone from farmers to high-level officials to Fidel Castro himself. You can find her writings on the topic on liberationnews.org. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Files podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Gloria, we've been hearing ad nauseum from the corporate news for the past couple of weeks now about these massive, quote unquote, massive demonstrations in Cuba. Of course, the Biden administration has reacted with more sanctions. Uh, they're now saying that Cuba is their focus, their priority right now. Uh, and we're hearing quite a bit from the corporate media um, talking about how these are you know, in the thousands that they're happening across Cuba, how they're being led by the poor, by peasants, um, and how all of this is essentially the fault of the socialist, quote unquote, regime. So I guess as someone who has been so many times to Cuba, who who has spoken to hundreds of Cubans who have organized um, with so many Cubans, I mean, just speak to that kind of framing that we're hearing come out of the media about what's going on. I, I think that the demonstrations were not in the thousands. There were at least hundreds in a number of places. And yet I think that the media highly focused and kept showing the same images, same images. But they also showed pro-revolution demonstrations, demonstrations in favor of the government and their country, where they were clearly of that nature, but were described as counter-revolutionary. In fact, in one, a mass march down a street, you can see Gerardo Hernandez, one of the Cuban Five heroes who spent 16 years in, in U.S. prison. He's there behind a Cuban banner. And so the U.S. media is trying to generate a 
scene of chaos and destabilization and what they would try to say a failed state in order to have the justification for further acts against the country, more sanctions, as you've mentioned, the Biden sanctions that he imposed on July 22nd this year. Right. And, you know, you've mentioned that there is the protests on July 11th, and that was really the only major day of protests by this uh, these counter-revolutionary forces. They, they haven't really been ongoing. It really was just this one day. And, you know, crowd counts are being disputed. I think that, you know, because they're using so many false images of pro-revolution demonstrations, I think there's only like one image of a a large uh, anti-government demonstration. And that's the one verifiable crowd size. And the count is like 160 people or something. Um, So definitely, uh, you know, the evidence supports what you're saying about um, not them being in the thousands. But can you explain a little bit about, you know, it, it wasn't just the, obviously they were coordinated in some way because they took place in multiple uh, regions on the same day. But it wasn't just that their people came out and protested all on the same day. They were doing similar types of action, similar types of acts of sabotage and violence to try to, um, you know, it would seem try to elicit some kind of government response, which, of course, is the typical CIA playbook, have protesters get some kind of reaction from the government. So then we could say they're repressing the rights of people. And so what kind of things took place? And was this the first time this has happened uh, in Cuba in in recent years? I think it's an an intensification of what the U.S. was carrying out in the early in the 1990s, during the time of the special period when the Soviet Union had collapsed and Cuba suffered a 35% drop in production, decrease in caloric intake. It was a very, very hard time. And the U.S. at that time predicted that they could do Cuba in. Of course, they failed in that. But in the 90s, there were a series of of bombs that were planted at paying Salvadoran and Guatemalan mercenaries to come into Cuba and plant bombs killing one tourist and causing great damage. And that was at the hands of a man named Posada Carriles, a known CIA operative for many years, in addition to others. And I think that's what they're trying to repeat now, starting in 2018, but intensifying in 2019 and 2020. There were actual economic sabotage, very, very dangerous. And they have the earmarks of men and women inside Miami who receive funds from the U.S. government and who have been paying people in the island to carry out these acts. And what kind of acts are those? Well, one, for example, was on May 26, 2019, which involved the derailing of several train cars in Mariel. Mariel is a very important installation a huge infrastructure at the at the docks that was created by Cuba with foreign investment to try to bring in international business for the future and this train was derailed um, and these men are linked to well-known terrorists from Alpha 66 in Miami led by one man Santiago Alvarez and three others Santiago Alvarez actually brought Luis Posada Carriles into Miami in 2005, and virtually nothing happened to him. He was convicted of having two huge warehouses in Miami of weapons of war, but he only spent a couple of years in prison until the U.S. lightened his sentence. And these men 
Cuban-Americans, two of them who derailed the train, had, had come from Miami. They're, they they had been arrested. I'm sure they're still in jail right now, but this was a very serious act against the economy. There was also one man who, in 2019, before he retired from working in the electrical uh, industry in Cuba, he was hired by these people in Miami again to copy all the information he could because he worked in the National Dispatch Center of all the electrical uh, plants. And he went to Spain, gave that information over, and this led to attacks on the electrical energy plants to try to create chaos. And what what preceded these latest round of protests in terms of sabotage or violence? Well, this, I think the, the U.S. figured and calculated that in addition to the blockade severity and the f- 243 measures that Trump had passed in his four years, 55 of them being during the pandemic, that the pandemic itself, which forced Cuba to shut down the tourist industry that was four and a half million tourists in 2019 before the closure of the country, it exasperated a very serious economic situation. So with the shortages of people lining up at five in the morning to go to stores to buy, you know, limited groceries and the lack of income from the loss of so many jobs because of the shutdown of the industry, um, people were starting to feel very, dissatisfied in certain areas. I mean, 11 million people are experiencing these hardships, but there are certainly a number of people who would be subject to the call for attacks. But there are concerted criminal elements inside the island who were being promoted. Now, in the last year, you probably have heard of the San Isidro movement. It's four men who together with about less than 15 people have been carrying out more open calls for overthrow, for, you know, an end to socialism. They call it communism. And they um, have been engaging in actions, also receiving money. But what had happened in particular was on January 1st, as people were celebrating the anniversary of the revolution, this was in 2020, that no, no, I'm sorry, 2021, that two men going through the streets, they were caught on camera, started throwing animal blood all over the busts, the little statues of Jose Marti, who's their national hero. That is not only a huge offense to Cuban people, but and, and never, never happened before, but one that's actually illegal. It's illegal to desecrate national symbols, especially that of Jose Marti. Well, they did this purposely to try to create a sense of destabilization, of of anger that would lead to people doing this. They were caught, and they admitted they were paid for this. All these people say that they had a price, a hundred C. They had at that time a currency called CUC, basically $100, $200, $500. There was one teenager who on November 16 was paid uh, roughly $500 to throw a Molotov at a gasoline station. And that kind of thing doesn't really happen in Cuba. Those kind of attacks are extremely rare. 
like I said, the last time these kind of terrorist attacks happened was in 1997 mm. by a concerted terrorist who, at one point in 1976, killed 73 people on a Cuban airliner, Luis Bosave Garrilas. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a very peaceful country. And this has been increasing in these individual acts. Now, the what happened on July 11, the Sunday protests that people saw all over the world and kept seeing on the images on TV, U.S. TV, was that on June 23rd, that was preceded with hundreds of Twitter accounts that suddenly appeared. There were automated bots. And on that day, June 23rd, the UN General Assembly was holding a vote, the annual vote that's been held since 1992, calling for the U.S. to lift what they call the embargo, but is in fact a, a blockade. And on that day when it was clear that the world was going to vote for Cuba, Bruno Rodriguez, the foreign minister of Cuba, gave a speech in which he talked about the U.S. starting to, trying to heat up the environment on the island. And he re-mentioned he re the appearance of these new Twitter accounts that were starting to generate call for actions. And then on, December, on, on July 10 and 11 were thousands of tweets that appeared some by hundreds a second, automatically generated with the hashtag, hashtag SOS Cuba and hashtag SOS Matanzas. Matanzas is a central province in Cuba that has seen a huge increase in COVID cases. Very unfortunate. It, it's a tourist center more than anything, but um, they're taking advantage of this, the people who were doing this. And then it was really undoubtedly these groups were told on the day you see this, okay, Sunday is the day because it suddenly appeared these protests. People had mounds of rocks with them because there were no rocks where they were throwing them in the streets. People had already prepared for the attacks. People had Molotov cocktails. And on that day of these, but probably several hundred people total demonstrating overturned police cars, um, threw rocks at people, injured people who were trying to stop. They attacked um, a hospital center. They attacked state institutions. And they attacked the police. There were a number of police who were injured. And the result is uh, probably 25 people have been arrested, but not near the number of people who were engaged in the attacks. 25 people total have been arrested? Yes, and some are... <laughs> On home uh, house arrest, yeah, some are home are detained. Others face charges, but are home. They're not. They don't. Have, they're not. They're not detained in their home. They can leave, but they're facing these charges. However, the government does say that they're studying more the more serious crimes in order to have a stronger case when they try them. So this idea that there is these mass roundups by police of demonstrators is just totally false. Yes, and then there were even instances where there was one man in particular, a professor, who went out to try to protect people, and they threw a huge rock on his head. He said if, it, if the rock had been smaller, he would have lost his eye, but he received a number of stitches. And as the police 
took him to the hospital and put him in the back seat, he was looking out the window, and that picture has been um, portrayed as his being a protester. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's manipulation of the images, but it's also manipulation of people's unhappiness. Mm. And as I said, 11 million people are experiencing these hardships, and they have in other times in the past since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the special period. But there are some people who I would say on the margins of society who aren't working, especially youth, who are don't have employment because they're not looking for it. There is a need for there is a need for people to fill jobs, or they're not studying. And there's also certain neighborhoods that have been created. They're informal neighborhoods that are actually not legal because people are moving in from other provinces into Havana. You, in Cuba, you have had to get permission to move from one province to another in order to make sure that services, housing, all the things that are needed for a society are provided. And because development is roughly the same everywhere in the country, there's no reason for people to flee to a capital of Havana, like happens in Mexico City, which is like 27 million people because the rural countryside is so, so underserved. That's not the case in Cuba. Nevertheless, some of these neighborhoods don't have the kind of facilities that established homes have. And so there's, it's created this situation. You know, I, I was in Cuba in June, and I saw some of this dissatisfaction. And I saw people who tend to not watch television or pay attention to government news or any kind of news of society. And don't care to hear it. They're unhappy. They may have links with people in Miami. You know, these perpetrators in Miami were actually looking youth up on Facebook and Twitter. Mm. And some of these youth who've been arrested said, you know, I was found. Or one, one man says, I was looking these people up. I've heard of this man. And I contacted him and I said, you know, I'm willing to do whatever you want. And so he went out and put he first he put posters up the man who hired him a very notorious man who belongs to this so-called group is probably the only member called lobos solitarios lone wolves his name is jorge luis fernandez figueras he is an all-out terrorist and he started this symbol of a c plus a left a right facing arrow and so he told people to try to create this idea of a growing opposition on the island, he told these men that would call him, go out and start painting the, the sea with the arrow. And then he told them at various times, go to a certain neighborhood on the outskirts of Havana and burn state institutions. Then he told this one man, um, go out to and burn down the major museum in Santiago de Cuba wow. on the eastern end of the island. He didn't do that. But he was arrested for burning other inst installations. Uh, on and on and on. Uh, this Jorge Luis Fernandez Figuera got uh, several men to burn down an electrical plant in 2017, a youth computer center, a polyclinic, a, cl a classroom in a high school on the outskirts of Havana. I mean, I could go on and on with these mm -hmm. acts, but they're basically when people are paid. Yeah, and so it seems like, you know, in any country, no matter how 
good the quality of life is, how popular the government is, whatever, you're going to have a sector of people that are don't like the government. So it's it's not a, a surprise that there'd be a sector of people in Cuba who uh, have bad feelings towards the government, especially when you're undergoing economic hardship and the impacts of blockade, of pandemic, all of these things stacking up on each other. Um, you're, of course, going to have a sector of the population that has very legitimate grievances and legitimate dissatisfaction. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying that. But what it seems here is there have been these uh, right wing forces based in Miami who have a lot of money, who are exploiting this dissatisfaction, finding people that they can pay to carry out, you know, number one, this propaganda campaign to make it seem like there's this growing counter revolutionary movement, but in particular, paying people to carry out these coordinated acts of violence. And these people, like you mentioned from Alpha 66, uh, these other, you know, these these people in Miami, you know, they're very much in collaboration and working with the CIA and coordinating with them. And I know that you uh, mentioned to me earlier when we talked on the phone that one of the kind of fingerprints of some kind of coordinated action is that these weren't spontaneous protests. They were carrying out similar acts of sabotage. Like, for example, in several locations, people took metal chains to throw them in the power lines to try to disrupt the power grid uh, and things like that. And so it's that seems to be what you're describing. You know, it seems like a typical uh, playbook by the U.S., by the CIA. Um, you know, you know, also who exactly, you know, the media has been saying that it's like peasants that are rising up. Marco Rubio is saying that it's artists and musicians that are rising up. We know the CIA has been spending like twenty five million dollars a year uh uh, on these groups, in particular groups of like artists and rappers and things like that. Um so if you could say something about that, and also it is kind of, you know, for all of the propaganda about how Cuba is like a police state authoritarian regime where you cannot dissent against the government, um, it seems like they know where these $20 million a year, are, like the groups that they're going into, the people that are getting them. You mentioned that these four guys that are started this group, like, um, you know, there's not like instant repression if you're receiving money from the U.S. or in the in these anti-government groups. It's it's the, the people who get arrested are for committing acts of violence and stuff like that. Is that accurate? Yeah, because the, you you can look on like USAID's website and see the grants given to the certain musicians and stuff. You know, I mean, like are, these people aren't behind bars. I mean, they're able to operate freely. Right. Yes. But, you know, the there is actually laws in Cuba. There is a law in Cuba that was passed in the early 2000s that makes it illegal to be a paid agent of a foreign government. And that's what they are. Mm-hmm. So there hasn't been uh, a prosecution in mass against some of the people doing this. But at some point, I don't think that they're going to keep tolerating this. And I like to say the thing about democracy and expression. The word dissatisfaction is not the best description of what's happening. Everyone is hurting in Cuba. Even people who receive his t- traditionally money from their loved ones in Miami through remittances, you know, they can sustain without working. If you get, oh, let's say $100 a month, you can do well because you don't pay rent, you own your house, um, you don't pay for education or for health care, you just have to worry about food. And yet even the people who receive money, which was about close to a million people in Cuba, a one and a half billion dollars a year, 
they were cut off completely last year by Trump. That's one of those 243 measures, creating a pressure cooker environment on the island. They want explosion. They want to make people suffer so much on a grand scale that people say, enough, we give in. And that's not going to happen because a vast majority of Cuban people are conscious to know what it would be like if the U.S. were to intervene, were to overthrow a socialist government and restore capitalism. People are not naive. And that's why they've endured and sacrificed all these years of blockade, 60 years. Why they had to go undergo the most severe test of the revolution in the 1990s when their caloric intake drastically dropped to 1,200 to 1,500 calories max. And I'm talking about the whole population. So the people who are acting out, there's some who say, you know, I don't want to take it anymore. I want to leave. Okay. Cuba would let them leave because it's legal to leave, but legally. No, you're not allowed to leave on a raft because you're going to die. They want to save lives. So what is the U.S. doing to create this pressure cooker environment? Cut off all the remittances. No money going in. Um, and where people were, the Cuban government made an agreement with Cuba in 1995 that 25,000 legal entry visas would be granted by the U.S. for Cubans to apply to leave and to come into the U.S. You know, by plane. The U.S. has not honored that. And so not only did they do that, but Trump... What he also did was so greatly reduce the personnel in the U.S. Embassy in Havana that was, you know, remember, opened up in 2015 after 55 years that the U.S. said you can't get a visa anymore to leave Cuba. Now you have to fly to Costa Rica to apply at our embassy there. And you might have to wait for several weeks or months is what they told Cubans. First of all, to fly to Costa Rica, you need to have a lot of money which most people don't have, that's another way of saying you really aren't going to be able to leave the island. Mm -hmm. And then they encourage, you know, the wet foot, dry foot, where they give you instant citizenship. I mean, encouraging people to, like, basically come risking life and limb on these boats. Then you see CIA documents that actually talked about blowing up the boats <laughs> to blame on Castro, uh, Operation Mongoose. I mean, just cartoonish levels of, like, terrorism, like Operation Northwoods trying to blow up, you know, airliners and blame them to foment regime change. I mean, it just goes back to such disturbing lengths that the CIA has has done this, Gloria. This color revolution plot that the U.S. is thinking they have fully underway right now has its antecedent a few years ago with a project that was called Genesis. It's a CIA plan, and the center of it was a man named Raul Capote, like Truman Capote, but it's Capote. And he was a cultural artist. He headed up a group called Hermano Saiz. It's a cultural organization in Cuba. And over time, he was recruited by the CIA in the late 1990s. And a CIA official was actually in charge of him. He was his direct link. Over time, Raul was given high, high technology spy equipment where he could link up immediately with the CIA in Langley, Virginia. And he was told this. Over time, they said, 
we figure it will take 10 to 15 years to unfold Genesis. And the calculation was it'll reach its culmination when the historic leaders of the revolution, Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, are either dead or retired. And when a new generation of leaders has to come in, you know, by nature. But Raul was also told, go recruit others. And the idea is that we're going to have outbreaks of protest. We're going to create chaos and destabilization. And at a peak moment, when the change is taking place in the new leadership, you're going to basically declare yourself president, Raul. And Raul said, why, why me? And they said, because you're not known. And this so it has the, all the markings of what happened in Venezuela in 2019 with this unknown Juan Guaido naming himself president after a, a series of disturbances and terrible violence from 2014 to 2019, in which they tried to delegitimize the second presidency of Nicolas Maduro, who was elected in May 2018 and took office on January 10, or actually he you know, was re-inaugurated January 10, and why with this new change of the second presidency, the U.S. timed Juan Guaido's announcement as this interim so-called president ten, nine days later. Well, that operation failed, but it also failed in Cuba. The Genesis prob Project just collapsed like a balloon with a pin prick because Raul Capote in 2011 came out and as a, as a as this CIA operative and said publicly, I am a Cuban double agent. While pretending to work for the CIA, I've been working for the Cuban secure, state security because he's a revolutionary. He said, they made a mistake. They picked the wrong person. Because <laughs> I, I am a revolutionary. He's a real hero of mine. But the stories that he told, he says, you know, and in, and in fact, the reason I'm telling you this is because um, I've, I, edit, I interviewed him. I've interviewed him a few times, but I did a pretty nice interview with him in 2019, just as I was going to Venezuela to go to the, to the, you know, be there for that month when Juan Guaido named himself. And he said at one point, remember when Celaya, after he was overthrown a year after, and he came to the border of his country mm -hmm. and he was about to step in? Yeah. And like what they did to Benino Aquino, they, you know, could have killed him. And Raul relates that he was watching TV with a CIA guy in his apartment. Which, by the way, every exchange with each other was being filmed by Cuba in yeah. his house. <laughs> there was a camera there all the time. But anyway, the guy says, take a lesson from this, Raul. Because they were watching it on TV. He said, take a lesson from this. I told him they should have killed him. We should never have let him live. Learn a lesson from this. Wow. So... He says all this. I mean, he was deep, deep, deep in it. And, uh, he, they, and in fact, when he came out, the CIA didn't even know about it for a couple of days because they weren't paying attention to Cuban television. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
you know, the, the CIA was fully embedded in Cuba, you know, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I mean, in so many countries in Latin America after World War II, after the CIA kicked off. And they, in fact, they helped set up an agency in Cuba called the Bureau for the Repression of Communist Activity. Ah. And it was basically a dungeon. And there is a place where it used to exist in Cuba. Wow. That and is Ra- so and Raul, over the top. Raul leads, yeah, Raul leads marches to it to remind the youth this is what it would be like if they came back. And the BRAC, it was called B-R-A-C. The CIA was there. In fact, Posada Carriles worked for them then. Oh and um, yeah, and 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 this is why Cubans have a memory of what it was like until July 26 today, 68 years ago today, when they attacked the Mogada, even though 70 of them were captured and murdered and tortured brutally, 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 you know, it was a call to the nation. And that's why Fidel, you know, like this song says, the star was, you know, hurled into the sky when Fidel, you know, attacked the Moncada. And today I just printed an article of from Granma, which is only in Spanish, of one of the martyrs. His name was um, Raul Garcia Gomez, and he's the one who wrote the July 26th um, theme that very night that they... We're about to attack the Moncada. It's a beautiful song. All the youth, you know, know it. And um, they pull his teeth out. When they capture him, they pull his teeth out. There's a picture of him, mm-hmm. a picture of him dead. And then they just, you know, shot him in the head, fractured his skull. That's what they did to all those 70 men. And that's why, you know, people, it's the biggest holiday of the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it led to the heroism. Revolution. I mean, it's just it absolutely amazing sure. the selflessness yeah. of these people. And thank you for honoring their memory in that way, Gloria. And it is really meaningful the fact that today, today, is that anniversary. Yeah. And it's their biggest celebration, July 26, you know? Mm hmm. And I mean, the blockade itself, I mean, this is in State Department documents that talks about how the purpose of the blockade is to starve people into submission, literally, quote, to bring about hunger, desperation and overthrow of the government, end quote, from the State Department's website. Um, I mean, just you've already touched upon just the effects of the blockade and the sanctions that Trump put in place. I mean, is it? Kind of like Venezuela right now, where there's just, you know, lines around the block where you can't find basic staples and goods because, you know, I mean, people who have been to Cuba know that it's already hard enough. And this was I went during the Obama administration when things were open up and a little bit more ease was administered in the economy. And it was still like a lot of shortages and and hard to get certain goods. Yes. And what what intensified starting with Obama, even though he made some measures allowing free remittances, allowing individual American travel to Cuba, which led to a huge increase in tourism in 2016, what Obama did under his administration was to impose billion-dollar fines on banks that did business with Cuba. Because the U.S., as part of the blockade that's been internationalized as of 19, 
96, is that the U.S. will tell a, a country, we found out that your bank was accepting Cuban transactions of U.S. dollars or euros. And therefore, you are fined by our law so many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Dozens of banks have refused to do business with Cuba anymore. And so imagine a country, any country that has to import food as Cuba does or medicine has to deposit the hard currency they have in a bank and they're getting shut down one by one. They have to keep searching for another bank that will accept their transaction. And so on the other hand also is with the drop in the economy because of the pandemic, Cuba is having to capture every dollar or euro on the island, hard currency, because Cuba's currency is not convertible in the world. It's not accepted by any bank in the world, only dollars. So what sustained Cuba before by selling its nickel ore, as you know, it's a major industry, or their tourism, the kind of things that they developed after the collapse of the Soviet Union when they engaged in trade, fair trade. Now, since the beginning of the year, Cuba, having suffered the um, loss of money from the remittances, everything, you know, they're cut off from every kind of income. Cuba created what's called MLC. There are stores where you can only buy items with dollars because there is a large number of dollars on the island, whether people hold them or, you know, there's money circulating on the island. And in order to efficiently capture those dollars to buy food, they have these stores that they set up and you can buy uh, air conditioners or you know, things for the home, or you can buy imported goods like beer kind of things, the kind of things that require hard currency. And as friends of mine said when I was there in June, they said, you know, these stores are not popular, but people know they're necessary. Most Cubans who are educated know, yes, we understand we have to capture dollars to bring food in. What What a mess. What a complete mess. Right, but but then the U.S. government knew. Oh, let's let's use that, let's use that incidence of those dollars, dollar stores. So that's why they immediately started telling people from Miami, if you pay, if you throw rocks at an MLC, we'll pay you two hundred dollars. My God! If you throw rocks at a bank, we'll pay you two hundred dollars. And that's what happened on the July eleven. People attacked the MLCs and they attacked banks. So Gloria, is this still? Really quickly, is this still going on? Because you, you're mentioning July 11th. Was this literally just like a day of protest and it hasn't been continuing? The right wing and the counter-revolutionaries had the advantage of surprise to just explode on the street. And there, I think there was something that happened the next day, but there has mm. been nothing else happening since then. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, because Miami-based Cubans, of course, are protesting, you know, and... and People just are seeing this barrage of imagery, and it's hard to distinguish even what you're seeing. 
Um, I recently went on the Joe Rogan podcast and talked about Cuba, Gloria, and I got a deluge, thousands and thousands of SOS Cuba accounts. I'm not sure how many were sock puppets, but of course, the vast majority were just very well off. Cuban exiles living in Miami looked extremely wealthy, but all of them said the same thing to me. Not only are they killing us in the streets, I, you know, I haven't seen any evidence of any sort of matching of the sadistic police brutality that we saw during the Black Lives Matter protests erupt in this country, but moreover, specifically about the blockade. They said none of this is due to the blockade. None of this is due to sanctions. All of this is due to the fault of the, the communist regime. And the blockade actually isn't a big deal because it really just affects U.S. trade and that every other country in the world can trade with Cuba. So therefore, you know, it's really obvious that it has nothing to do with that. I wanted you to touch specifically on that. I know you did a little bit, but like, what is your response to people who say that? Well, I was on one of those, I was listening to one of those shows, like you're saying, you got, you saw thousands of of responses against you, of people who say the blockade doesn't have an effect. That's such a total lie. Um, The fact that Cuba can't have bank transactions to buy food for the population. In addition, any item that Cuba sells abroad, no country or company can buy items from Cuba that has any kind of, um, you know, nickel ore or other elements in it without being sanctioned by the U.S. Wow. And the U.S. cannot buy any item in the world that has more than 10% of U.S. product. But in addition, I met with the Ministry of Health in Cuba in June, and they gave me example after example. And I met also with the Biotechnology Center, which is producing the vaccines, and they explained how they'll, they have a piece of equipment that's very valuable, like a spectrograph, and they need parts, but it was suddenly bought up by an American company. It was a Danish company, and they couldn't get parts anymore. Wow. On and on and on. Um, the Ministry of Health gave me examples of how many people were benefiting a few years ago from medicines that they could actually get permission to buy from the U.S., very exclusive, those kind of orphan drugs that are needed for people with very rare disease. And now, with the Trump administration, it's all been cut off. And they describe one 11-year-old girl who's really going backwards in development. It was helping her so much because she had to have very, very special medicine only produced in the U.S., and now she's suffering greatly from it. They cannot get that medicine. It's, it's, it's genocide. Sick. It's really genocide when you think about it. And then you have to remember, uh, two years ago, the U.S. blocked all the oil shipments that come from Venezuela. Mm-hmm. That's an act of war. Some 30 ships regularly delivered oil to Cuba, and all of them had to stop because the U.S. said, your ships will no longer be covered by insurance. And of course, that means something might happen to you on the way that you're delivering that oil. Mafia style. And that oil is delivered in exchange for the 23,000 doctors that Cuba has in Venezuela providing free health care. It's a, a fair economic arrangement. And yet, even though Cuba's not receiving the oil, they're still providing the doctors because that's how they are, you know, solidarity. And yet now Cuba has to buy oil from abroad. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, when you when you see how the sanctions and the embargo target specifically medical supplies, like going and preventing Cuba from just getting medical equipment to treat people with cancer and things like that, trying to uh, restrict the supply of just medicines that, you know, are taken by children with rare diseases, as you mentioned, it just shows how sick the embargo is and what kind of stress and demoralization and suffering it it does create by design so i think you've you've done a good job of debunking that point uh, by the the cuban counter-revolutionaries and the u.s um but another one i wanted to touch on was you know we saw these dueling protests right we saw the uh anti-government protests which were in the hundreds uh total across the entire country but then of course you saw the pro-government demonstrations come out but i think the argument is that the cuban government is not popular it's uh people only come out to the streets because the government makes them come out into the streets um you know i think one indicator maybe of how not popularity of the government, but political participation and belief in the system is that I think in the last parliamentary election, there was like an 85 percent voter turnout. Uh, Would you say is that transparent and accurate? And how would you describe the level of democracy, the level of support for the revolution in the country? Like, how can you measure that and how can you see that based on your experience to kind of paint the picture of what size of the population is still for socialism and dedicated to the project and what sectors of the population would you would put in a category of action? counter-revolutionary and wanting to overthrow what they call communism? I would say that, honestly, the first of all, on the issue of political participation and support, the government has always had a policy that anytime there's a change, whether it's a new law or an economic strategy that had to be employed, for example, during the 1993 a crisis of the special period, and when the government had to undergo an enormous change in economy, it was done, first of all, with an explanation of the plan. Every workplace had a discussion and debate. Every neighborhood, the whole population was engaged, and they had a right to opine. Because people not only have the right to free expression, they, they have an, an, an educated opinion. They have the truth and the facts. And so they have consensus and referendum. In 2000, um, I think it was 2003, when there was sudden attacks on, on the government by the U.S., you know, and a lot of these same operations we're seeing now, the, there was a proposal to have a referendum that said socialism is irrevocable. Socialism is Cuba and it's irrevocable. And 85% of the people voted for it. They vote freely and they vote on Sunday and people over 16 vote and the elections are free. You're not allowed to spend money in the elections. That takes a lot longer to, ex- to explain it. But even the constitution, which was a five-year project to update the 1976 constitution, there were hundreds of thousands of comments submitted by the population Everybody got a printed copy of the draft, and there were hundreds of changes from those opinions. And as you said, 85% of the population voted. It was overwhelming approval, and it's a process. I mean, people are engaged, and they know they have a say. In fact, in the weeks before the January 1st, 2021 
new economic measures that were passed in order to deal with this crisis of the pandemic and unifying two currencies that they were operating under in order to more be more efficient in the economy as they felt they had to do it, like to capture all those dollars. Um, everybody was given the education on television night after night about what was going to happen. All the state employment received, the workers received a major increase in their wages because they had gone so many years without a significant increase and they were being thanked for their sacrifice for so many years, which also led to about 200,000 people from the informal sector of employment coming back into state employment because the wages are so high. But in addition, uh, the, the government leader says, we have to raise the electricity rates because we're spending an inordinate amount of money, money to import oil and everything we need for the electricity. And so they gave the table of what the rates would be. Well, even with the, the wage increases and, and pension increases, immediately people began to, pro to uh, not protest, they started to write in their comments and call in and say, we don't agree with this, it's too high. So the very next night on Cuban television, they reviewed it and said, well, we heard enough complaints that we're going to lower the rate increase. It was still a rate increase, but they said, we heard your complaints. But they also said, as a result, it's going to cost us five billion more pesos to, to absorb the reduction in the rate increase. And they said, and you should know, it's going to cause a shortage elsewhere. This is how tight and how severe the economy is affected. But so people do have a say, more than we would ever have here. Yeah, I mean, when I was there, I I was very impressed with just like the local engagement of community meetings and nominating certain officials from your community to to serve on these boards and stuff like that, kind of similarly to Venezuela. But, you know, unlike Venezuela, there is a one party system. Um, there is a relatively high amount of people in prison, you know, obviously nothing compared to the world's largest prison population here in America. But and then, of course, there's the the critiques of the lack of Internet access. And um, I'm not sure how the, how the news operates there. I'm assuming it's definitely not as cartoonish as it's depicted. But I guess just touch upon those points as well, Gloria. Yes. Well, on the issue of Internet, Internet is actually freely accessible, but it costs. It, it, the U.S., of course, controls most of the Internet networks and servers, so Cuba has to pay a high price for it. They don't have their own independent you know, system. And so Cubans do pay to have Internet. But it's all over the place, you know, as the accessibility has been made possible by infrastructure changes. The Internet was shut down for a few days because of the interference by the U.S. and all this Twitter and trying to foment the unrest as they had a right to. However, in 2018, early February, began the first meeting in Washington of a number of government agencies, including the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, for what they call the Cuban Internet Task Force. And the idea of this task force is to basically invade Cuba's communications 
to try to continue with these messaging and fomenting of disruption in the island and destabilization and opposition. So they're intensifying it right now. And that's one of the measures that Biden passed the other day of the new sanctions on January, um, July 22nd. He said, we're going to make sure to bring free internet to the Cuban people. It's not because they want Cuban people to communicate with each other. And they're even talking about floating balloons from Miami, like satellites in the air, in order to transmit internet. You know, they tried this in 1985 when they began Radio Marti. That was this essential U.S. government propaganda being beamed into the island. And that was blocked. It still is blocked. And then in 1990, they started TV Marti, which receives both of those agencies receive about $350 million a year to operate. It's part of the U.S. CIA war, whether it's Radio Free Europe or Radio Free Asia or Radio Free, wherever they want to destabilize and overthrow a government. And that's what Biden is now intending. So not only did he lie about his promise to turn back at least the Trump measures, and Biden also promised that he would go back to the measures that Obama had allowed to make it easier for Cuban people, but he is now adopting all of Trump's policy, plus his own. Yeah, and we know about the fake Twitter that they tried to install to generate some sort of Arab Spring 2.0, which did not work. <laughs> um, uh, even met with Jack Dorsey to try to solicit that uh, happening. I'm, I think back in 2014 or something like that. So yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff happening in terms of um, you know giving Cubans freedom uh, under the guise of of the internet. You know, as the savior and trying to generate some sort of regime change there. Uh, but I guess touch upon what kind of news Cubans do receive. Is it you know, you said TV Marti, which is obviously funded by the U.S. Um, what other kind of news are they receiving on a daily basis? And also the status of political prisoners. I mean, who, are, you know, if, if people are opposing the government, I mean, are, are, are there political prisoners in prison right now in Cuba for just for being politically repressed? You know, it's interesting when Barack Obama went to Cuba in 2016 the first sitting president ever to do so after the revolution, he was given full access to the whole island on national TV in the evening, prime time. And you can bet everybody was watching because they wanted to hear what is this first president to come here going to tell us? What is he going to do about the blockade? And so Obama spoke without censorship. You, we have never heard a speech by Fidel or even his voice in the United States. You'll never hear Raul Castro speaking to the American public or even hear him giving a talk anywhere else that would be broadcast here. We're not supposed to hear that they're humans or have humane ideas. But in the press conference that was held for President Obama, there was some right-wing media there. And one of them said, a foreign journalist, said to President Raul Castro, who was not the one to be speaking, it was Obama, he said, he said, when are you going to release the political prisoners in Cuba? And Raul Castro was indignant. He said, you name, he said, first of all, this is not my press conference, but he said, you name me one person 
who's in prison for political ideas. You name me one, and they'll be released today. You give me the list. That never happened. Because people aren't, people aren't put in prison for political ideas. Like I said, people are free to give their opinion. Those, those people you'll see in the street who say they hate the revolution or they don't agree with, not only don't agree, that they dislike socialism, they hate it, that they want capitalism, that they want to go to the U.S., nothing happens to them. And they're not afraid to say it either. I've had many examples of that myself personally. The, the people who are called political prisoners are people who commit crimes of these economic attacks on the economy, for example, the sabotage. There's a man that the U.S. is touting. His name is Daniel Solis. He's one of the one of those ones who was receiving money and carrying out these attacks. And now he's become like this poster child. And I would say the thing about prison. Cuba's criminal justice system is far humane to the U.S. There's really no comparison. First of all, because minors don't go to jail. And even this teenager underage who threw a Molotov cocktail, he did not go to jail. A Molotov cocktail on the gas station. And there was a, a, a woman from uh, the Ministry of Justice who said, as you know, because she was describing what the policy would be, she said, after the disturbance, she goes, as you know, minors do not go to jail. So we will be working with the youth who were involved in these crimes to educate them, to show them the way. You know, you don't hear that here. You hear 13-year-old, 14-year-olds who get tried as adults and go to prison and get sent for life or decades. And the other is that I met with uh, two police officers, a young man and a young woman, because when I was there in June, I asked, I'd like to interview police. And that's, not, that's very rare to be granted that. But they gave it to me to be able to talk with them. And I asked them a lot of questions. And they spoke to me about their philosophy as police. And they talked about the history of the Cuban Revolution and how torture, illegal detention, abuse of a prisoner is absolutely forbidden. I mean, that's what they told me, and I believe it. And their attitude was one I've never seen in a cop here in the United States. You know, I who've been arrested many times, and of <laughs> course, you know what happens to to young black and Latino men and women. We we don't have to be told what the situation is in the United States. So too many people know. But I I really don't think that Cuba relies on prison or jails to bring about justice. That's um, really interesting to hear, Gloria. And, you know, it it would seem that a good indicator of people who uh, support the revolution versus people who want a counter-revolution would be the size of the demonstrations. Because if you have such a such hardship, right, such a such a base of people that you can, these people in Miami and the CIA and the U.S. government, people that have so much potential to be coerced and to be giving large sums of American dollars to do something like just throw a rock through a bank window. Um, you know, the amount of money, you know, for such a, a population that's going through so much, for the CIA and for 
these rich uh, Cubans in Miami to be throwing so much money at this and to be working for so many years to like have their moment. July 11th was this is our moment. It's perfect. We have Trump sanctions. We have the pandemic. We have all of the money that we just poured in. We've done all this setup. And July 11th is our big show of force. And the fact that their big show of force was really meager in just a couple hundreds of people. Um, And not because people are scared to come out. I mean, I think what you described is there is a very low level of political repression by the police. I mean, 25 people arrested despite all of these acts and the people not even going to jail for actually committing out committing acts of terrorism and sabotage that were openly funded by counter-revolutionaries in Miami and in the U.S. government. So it wasn't just that there was people who were counter-revolutionaries were scared to come into the streets. Obviously, they felt safe in coming out into the streets. And so I think that that is a good indicator of this actual size of the forces that want to participate in the overthrow of the government, very minis- a, a small political minority. Um, but to get a sense, so so because of that, because the color revolution uh, strategy seems impossible for the U.S. to get regime change, they can't foment a counter-revolution just in the grassroots of Cuban society because it, with a pathetic show of force on July 11th and then not being able to sustain itself, that would show the U.S. government and the Miami right-wingers that, well, that's not the way to get in. And so then you have the Republicans introducing this act in Congress to grant Biden war powers. And essentially what this is would be an invasion of Cuba. It's all masked, of course, in delivering humanitarian aid. And so really the outline of this uh, this act that the that Congress wants to put on Biden is to say that the U.S. military will invade Cuba to deliver humanitarian supplies. And part of that is the military will prevent the government from seizing them. And so it would basically be setting up like a U.S. green zone like they did in Iraq, but in Cuba where Cubans can come and get so-called humanitarian aid. But it would be like a U.S. military invasion of the island and setting up a base of operations in the middle of Cuba. Um, what I, I it seems like that's a, not a very possible thing to happen. But what do you think the response of the Cuban people would be? I mean, we know that Cuba wouldn't allow uh, a violation of its sovereignty like that, but not just the Cuban military, but the fact that the Cuban people themselves are organized into neighborhood militias. I know that there's like uh, neighborhoods have like armory. No, not everyone has like an AK-47 in their house, but there's ways to access it. And the population is very conscious of the fact that the U.S. could one day invade like they did in the past in the Bay of Pigs. Um, but what what would you say? What do you say to this strategy that the that the Republicans are putting forward to try to pressure Biden to do? And what would that really look like in Cuba? And how would the Cuban people respond? Well, first, you're right. Cubans are not allowed to have guns in their home. Uh, individual gun ownership isn't allowed, and yet they're the most prepared for defense of their country because uh, the youth of Cuba do learn um, how to handle a gun, and they learn defense from, from early on. The whole population has what they call days of defense where they prepare the guns that they do have in these stores Um they're able to defend themselves if anything happened. The U.S. knows that they cannot set up a military intervention. First of all, the island is so close to the U.S., unlike Iraq, where you could fire missiles and from ships away. Cuba is so close to the U.S. that Cuba says, if you attack us, we'll attack you. We have, a, we have our, our sights on your military bases. 
and they would attack military bases, not the civilian population. Hopefully that would never happen. But the U.S. cannot occupy one inch of Cuban territory except the 47 square miles that they occupy in Guantanamo. Guantanamo base, which is an absolute violation of their sovereignty, and from which in the early 1960s, even into the 70s, U.S. soldiers would carry out attacks. I mean, they actually fired on the population and on guards, Cuban guards, killing people. That hasn't happened in years, but, you know, theoretically something could happen where the U.S. would try to use Guantanamo as a spear against the rest of the island on this idea of humanitarian aid. But that humanitarian aid so-called corridor that they tried in Venezuela in February 2019, where I was at the border, I was there at the border, where those uh, trucks were trying to come in and where hundreds and hundreds of people, young and old, defended the border, uh, stood up against the terrorists who were throwing Molotovs, burning people. But the, the act was not intended so much to bring food, because they know Venezuela is feeding its people. The purpose of that humanitarian corridor was to test the unity of the military, which failed, because at max, 300 soldiers, mostly naive young men, you know, rank and file, left and went into Colombia because they were promised $25,000 each. They never got it, you know. Um, and so that failed because the military of Venezuela is intact and solid defending its country. It, it's way more in Cuba. Cuba's military has been raised in an atmosphere of defending socialism. And the U.S. knows that they can't attack Cuba militarily. I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't try it, but that's not the first alternative for the U.S. What they want to do is to keep making life unbearable. They want to reach a point where, where masses of people will say, we give up. But like I said, they've been through harder times. And they say, what we're doing instead is we're developing our own vaccines because we know we won't get them from the world. So they have five vaccine lines, two of them more than 90% effective. And people are getting their shots around the country. It's true they have a, a serious situation with COVID right now. But Cuba is relying more and more on its own resources and on solidarity of the world. Even though they're getting the, strangled, Mexico sent two Navy ships full of aid this weekend. Russia sent plane loads of aid. And I think the world is going to feel the need to step it up. We had these caravans on July 25th in the U.S. Cuban-Americans walked to Washington. People are responding to say, no, you can't do this to Cuba. And that's what we have to look to, is the people saying, we see the danger more than ever. And for us, in the political progressive movement of the U.S., we have to educate the American people about what the blockade is. I always say, Americans, people in the U.S., believe in democracy we just don't know what it is <laughs> and we don't know what our government does to other people and i've said this before on cuban tv we live in the middle of a hurricane we live in the eye of the hurricane while all around the world 
the damage that the U.S. causes by sanctions, blockade, war, bombings, is destroying countries and people and killing millions. And we don't even know it here. So our work is cut out for us. It is indeed, Gloria, and you've been such a crucial part of that. Um, and, you know, just this bastion, alleged bastion of freedom that's heralded as such a sacred right. Um, and that's really what this is about. This is about the freedom to choose self-determination of other countries, um, lifting the boot off of the neck of tens of millions of people around the world. I wanted to close out this incredible conversation uh, with just asking you about the political forces who would take power if there was a counter-revolution that was successful. You know, in Venezuela, you have the elite that live there that are, we know who they are, right? Juan Guaido, his uh, cohorts. Um, Who are the bourgeoisie that live in Miami that are just kind of sitting back waiting? Because they don't live in Cuba. (laughs) Well, mostly... The bourgeois elements in Miami are the ones, the descendants, the ones who still hold on to the papers of title of property in Cuba, whether it was a factory or, you know, homes or land or even airports, the ones who are now filing lawsuits against Cuba and countries or companies in the world that are investing in what used to be U.S. property. According to the Helms-Burton law, now they're allowed to do that and have been able to confiscate properties that belong to Cuba in, in the United States or confiscate properties from corporations. So it's a disincentive to invest in Cuba. But I'm really glad you asked me, what would it be like if the U.S. were able to take over or, or have their puppets take over as minions? In the early 2000s, when George Bush was president, George um, Jr., he and a number of U.S. agencies and departments drew up a plan called the Cuban Democracy, Transition to Democracy. It was a 485-page plan when the U.S. thought, okay, now it's time. Now we can overthrow the revolution. Each president has said that, you know. But the 485-page plan is very revealing because in it they say, one point is they say, when democracy comes back to Cuba, we will take over all what used to be U.S. property and we'll make Cuba pay an additional debt of 6% per year for what we lost all these years. Oh, my God. Oh, it's, it's, it's stated. You should look at the I have the document. I'll send it to you. Wow. Because it's never been retracted. And then, have, and, then, and then they have an element that says, well, seniors, retired people have been accustomed in Cuba to having, you know, free health care, uh, free housing, you know, and they're going to have to be accustomed. We'll have to give them job training and other services because some people will have to go back to work. And then it also says... And we'll engage in a massive vaccination program for the children of Cuba. Well, maybe the U.S. doesn't know this. They do know it. But all Cuban children receive every 
vaccine that's recognized as needed for child development, including the meningitis B vaccine that Cuba discovered first in the world, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. But they also said, we will dredge the ports of Cuba to make sure that U.S. ships can come in freely. It's it's a, it's a blueprint for invasion and occupation like they did to Iraq, where they took back Iraq's oil and have created a country where a million and a half people died of sanctions and blockade to try to make them break, and they didn't until they were invaded and occupied, an occupation that continues to this day, or what they did in disappearing Yugoslavia as a country after they invaded. And I was there with Ramsey Clark for 10 days during the NATO bombing, U.S. NATO bombing, and 600 state-owned factories were destroyed. And now you have in Yugoslavia private capital and the same ills that we have in capitalism here in the U.S. And you have Kosovo, which the U.S. said was fighting for its independence, is now occupied by five NATO countries. So that's what would happen to Cuba and why it will never happen. Because, as I said, the Cuban Revolution is, you know, every, every revolution is unique. But it has a particularity of Fidel and the other revolutionary leaders creating a society where people really are in power. And where people know their power. And they exercise it. And they know the price that they've had to pay and are willing to continue to pay for what they really have, which is freedom. It is an incredible feat what Cuba has done, this tiny island nation and generating so much goodwill um, around the world, being on the front lines of every single natural disaster, being on the front lines of this global pandemic. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, you can go on and on about their medical advancements and, and everything that they've done for their people. And that's really, that's the crux of, of what we're talking about here is these are these social gains that have uplifted a society despite all odds. Um, And those would be erased by the elite that would want to retain power through fascist measures, Gloria. Um, And these are the same people who elected the mayor of Miami, who's basically openly calling to kill people in Cuba. I mean, what kind of sick person says something like that to bomb Cuba into submission, to kill Cubans to starve them to sanction them these people are calling for murder for genocide uh, it's it's a really really dark insight on the mentality of the people who would take power and it would be pretty hard for them to do so Gloria given what you've outlined but um if you have any last comment just on on you know just this outrageous news of the mayor actually calling to bomb and, and sanction and just that kind of mentality of these people that we're talking about Thank you. I believe that those who call for war on Cuba, bombing, or for maintaining or tightening the blockade, those who speak as Cubans, I think they long ago gave up their right to call themselves Cuban. Because first of all, they left. And many of them in Miami who espoused that were never even born there. But they live off the money that they can make and the profits and the influence by saying they're against Cuba. It's another country, Miami. And many people are subject and terrorized by that fascist ideology of Miami. 
I would like to say, though, that the Miami Cuban right wing does not determine U.S. policy. Some people say, well, it's the Cuban lobby that makes the president do this. He needs to have the vote. That's completely untrue. I mean, even Obama, you know, not to give him too much credit, but he um, spoke up against a lot of this policy and he won Florida. That's, but the tail does not wag the dog. And it doesn't wag the dog with the, with the Israeli lobby either. It's Washington policy. It's State Department policy. It's the Pentagon, which wants to crush the idea that a people really can have a life of security and peace and happiness when they take their country into their own hands and determine for themselves how they'll live which in this world is socialism, in my belief. That capitalism is destroying the world with this endless consumerist production. And by the way, Cuba is the one country regarded in the United Nations as having a negative carbon footprint. Wow. That is more helpful to the environment than, than harmful. Because it is socialist, because it is a planned economy. And because of the blockade, or in the midst of the blockade, using their resources and the lack of a profit motive, they were able to find the means to engage in widespread organic farming and how to find the science. They deepened their science in that regard. How? Because they knew that they would be cut off from the world with the collapse of the socialist camp, Fidel proposed that they use their human intelligence, their highly educated population to find the means. And that's why they have this biotechnology industry that's literally the marvel of the world. Right now, they have, in a cooperation with the Roswell Cancer Center in Buffalo, New York, a massive study on Cuba's very hopeful lung cancer vaccine, which is extending the life of people an average of several months who have cancer, but some people are actually living for years. And so this excited the cancer center in Buffalo, and now they're going to build a joint mass institution in Cuba. And Cuba has dozens of, of these kind of installations where they're just producing, producing, working, working, scientists with no profit motive. I visited them in June, and I just marveled at how they work night and day. They live like every other Cuban. They have their shortages, you know, they bike to work or they take the bus or, you know, find means of transportation to get to work and to continue helping the people. And you hear them talk like that. You hear them talk about their commander-in-chief, Fidel, and what he did to help them develop science. It kind of flies in the face of that whole mantra of capitalism where you need competition in order to get the drive. You need that financial motivation for people to be driven to invent and to create. I mean, this completely flies in the face of everything we've been told, Gloria. Well, you know, you're right, though, but, but it's true. A capitalist only has a motive of profit. A capitalist will not open up a factory and say, we're going to keep producing at a loss in order to save people from COVID. That never happened in this whole time here in the US. The workers, the people, the farmers, the people will always find a way to come out of the crisis. 
without a profit motive because we don't have that. You know, some people may have illusions. You'll find sometimes people say, I'm a capitalist. No, actually, you're for capitalists, but you're not a capitalist. <laughs> but it, history shows that all the advancements has come from people wanting a way to help humanity. And in fact, all these inventions of corporations, they're workers. You know, the workers don't get profits from it. My former father-in-law, who worked at Kodak, he uh, made 14 inventions that led to the modernization of the camera. And he got $14 for that. Oh but God. that wasn't his motive. Yeah, they got a dollar for every invention in Kodak. That happens in most corporations, you know. You don't own what you invent. So the corporations have the incentive. The workers have the desire to improve life. Exactly. And this is Cuba really truly is a case study of what can be done. Um, and it's just incredible what they've done, Gloria. It's incredible everything that you've outlined today. If we put people before profit, what could we do? The opportunities are endless. Thank you so much for your time, for your incredible insight, Gloria LaRiva. Uh, let me just close this out by asking if you have any resources that you can recommend to our audience uh, if they want to learn more about Cuba yes. and just your work. Yes, I highly recommend grandma.cu. They have an English um, section of the paper. That's Cuba's national paper. But I, I recommend it because it has so much information on the science, on their agriculture, on the difficulties. I mean, it's very open about the, the challenges they're facing. If people really want to know, and that's G-R-A-N as in Nancy, M as in mother, A dot C-U. You can also look up the Cuba Money Project. And that is um, by a man named Tracy Eaton, E-A-T-O-N. And he does extensive study and files a lot of FOIAs in order to get information on all the U.S. funding that's directed against Cuba. That's a very good resource. And you can read... Um, Oh, you know, all the progressive media has good coverage about it, about Cuba. Um, but you can also look at answercoalition.org and key in Cuba or Venezuela resources. And we have one sheet that has all the Cuba and Venezuela-related information. Like, there's a very good Venezuelan one in English and Spanish, called Misión Verdad, Mission Truth in Spanish, misiónverdad.com.com. And they have excellent investigative work. Fantastic. I, I look forward to checking that out. Thank you so much, Gloria. You've been amazing, and it was really great talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And can I add one more thing? Yeah, of course. You have to edit this in. And liberationnews.org also has very good coverage, not only of the assault by the U.S. on Cuba, but especially the actions that people are taking in solidarity and how you can get involved. That's the most important thing. Absolutely. Very, very crucial resources. I highly recommend everyone to check those out and please share them because we are in an information war. This is a multi-pronged war. And a huge part of that is the media. So we got to take that back. Gloria, keep up the great work. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Abby and Mike. And I want to say I've traveled to Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua 
this summer. And everywhere I go, when I mention the Empire Files, everybody is aware of you. No way. That's amazing. No, Nicaragua was like, we love Abby Martin. <laughs> thanks so much again Gloria would love to talk to you again soon about so much more because you just you know you have so many stories to tell as well but this was super important and I'm really happy that we got you on I thank you take good care you too